In November 2018, a 26-year-old American named John Chow attempted to illegally contact the people of North Sentinel Island, the Sentinelese people. These are the inhabitants of a tiny island to the southwest of Thailand. Perhaps you've heard of this island. It's in the Bay of Bengal. I believe it's under Indian uh, control or under their, their government, the auspices of their government. But he was attempting to make contact with those people. Again, that is illegal uh, because they are an unreached group by any stretch of the imagination. Not just unreached by Christianity, but just simply you don't have contact with these people. They do not have contact with outsiders. And John Chow was trying to go to share the love of Christ with them. He felt like it was a worthwhile pursuit to contact those people, give them gifts, smile at them, simply seek to start a conversation without words because he doesn't know their language and it'd be hard to even know what their language is like since we have no contact with them. But he, he knew that uh, it was going to be a very dangerous expedition for him. So John Chow died trying to love the North Sentinelese people. He was shot with bows and arrows. In fact, he went two different times. The first day, a bow and arrow hit his waterproof Bible, and so he, a bow, an arrow did, and so then he, he left, but he had tried to express by giving fish and things like that to these people. So he left, came back the next day, or I believe actually maybe perhaps that night, I can't remember the exact details, uh, his body was found filled with arrows, and he had been killed by these, by these people. He seemed to have a sense, even from his journal that was found, uh, that he was likely about to die, that this was going to be his last act of service for the Lord. And some perhaps would say he was foolhardy for trying to reach these people. Maybe his methodology wasn't very good. Maybe he shouldn't have uh, expended resources in this particular way. Others may commend his courage and uh, resilience and Christian zeal. About a decade before that, In 2008, a Christian woman named Gail Williams was killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. She was there as a missionary, ministering to people who had been disabled by landmines through war. She was killed while walking on a street in her neighborhood. Her killers, the Taliban, took credit for her death, explaining they had killed her for the crime of attempting to spread Christianity. What motivates Christians to go to hard places. Gail Williams wasn't in Afghanistan because she thought it was a safe place to live. She knew very well the danger of living in Afghanistan in 2008. It was a very hot place at that time um, in terms of war. She was there serving the Lord. She was there seeking to honor the Lord by taking care of people who had been affected, disabled, paralyzed perhaps, uh, and and injured in many different ways because of landmines. John Chow didn't hire fishermen to take him to North Sentinel Island because he thought he would be warmly received and make new friends. He knew he was going into a place that it was illegal to go to. He illegally hired fishermen to take him as close as they could get him to, to go and make contact with these people. So what motivated them to go? It wasn't the law, and it wasn't trying to make new friends. It was the gospel. It was the love of Christ. Bottom line was there were probably many factors in play for why these people went to such lengths and met their own death. 
They were aware of human sinfulness, of man's guilt before God, of the beauty of the gospel, and of the brevity of their own lives. In other words, they realized that if I die at 26, it's not much different from dying at 96. Like, life is short either way. So, I'm going to use the one life I have to preach Christ. Our passage today identifies what it is that motivates people to go to hard places and what stabilizes Christians who live in hard places and endure the hardships of life for the glory of Christ. Are you in a hard place today? You don't have to live in a place where it's illegal to be a Christian in order to be in a hard place right now. Physically speaking, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking. But our passage stabilizes those of us who are in a hard place. And our passage is Revelation 6 and 7, and it bleeds over a little bit into chapter 8. I'll explain in a little while uh, why we're dividing today's passage where we are. But if you're using one of the Bibles provided, this is on page 968. Uh, Those Bibles are under this seat in front of you. This book was written as a letter from John, one of Jesus' followers, while Jesus was ministering on earth. John wrote this letter to Christians living in about the year 95 or maybe 96. They were living, the Christians who he was writing to, were living under the reign of a man named Domitian. He was the Roman emperor at the time. And Domitian was characterized by great love for himself. No shocker there that a Roman emperor would love himself a lot. I mean, we love ourselves a lot too. But he went to such lengths that he said that everyone should call him Lord and God. You can find this from various sources of the, of the day, from the first century. So he persecuted Christians because they wouldn't call him Lord and God. And he went to great lengths to make life miserable for them. So, in other words, the Christians reading this letter of Revelation. Again, it's a prophetic letter. It's an apocalyptic letter. But it's a letter. It starts that way and it ends that way. So everything in between is part of this letter. Those who were reading this letter were suffering for their faith. And in order for us to understand this passage or any other passage, we have to go back to them, to the first readers. We have to go back to then. Our temptation, it's my temptation, is to open the passage and come to here and now and to say, all right, what's this say to me? We've got to go back to them and then. Okay? We've got to understand that this passage meant something was intended to have an effect on the people back there and back then. So different kinds of Christians were receiving this letter. Where do you get that from? Remember chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters there. There are Christians who are lukewarm. There are Christians who are faithful. There are Christians who are immoral. There are Christians who are trying to be a conglomeration of all of these things. But there are different kinds of Christians reading this letter And so when we read this passage in just a moment, uh, please try to put yourself in their shoes back there, living under an ungodly emperor who hated them because they would not call him Lord. And put yourself in their shoes and ask how this would have encouraged and stabilized them. Once you figure that out, then you can come to here and now and say, how is this going to stabilize me? How did it give them hope? How to give them perspective? How to give them motivation? And in those same ways, it will help us. But we've got to go back to them first. So please follow along as I read. This is uh, Revelation 6 and 7, first five verses of chapter 8. And again, if you're new to the Bible, these large numbers are the chapters. That's where we'll start. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the souls, uh, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. My temptation is going to be to preach an hour-long sermon in 30 minutes. I'm going to do my best not to do that. By that I mean, there's a lot we could cover here. There's a lot I'm not going to cover. You probably have tons of questions about that passage I just read. So do I, just so you know. This is a crazy passage. And tons of books have been written just about this passage. And so whether you're... And I say crazy passage in the sense that it hits us as being crazy, okay? Obviously, it's breathed out by God, and I'm not trying to minimize that or any, in any way. But whether you're a Christian raised in the church, like you've been hearing this stuff since you were three in Sunday school, or whether you've never read this passage before, which I think we probably have some people in both of those categories... There's tons of stuff in this passage that just makes you kind of be like, I don't know what this is talking about. Who are these four horses and these creatures and all of this? And so, I hope that if you're not a Christian, this passage will make you think, I should keep reading the Bible, not I never want to read the Bible again. And if you are a Christian, you will say, this is amazing. I want to know the God that this passage is talking about. And so what John is arguing, let me give you the... The nutshell version here. And what John is arguing in this passage is that Jesus the Lamb, that's who we saw in chapter 5 last week, Jesus the Lamb shepherds his suffering people to the very end. That might sound a little weird. You've got a lamb shepherding a flock. That sounds like maybe the lamb should be part of that flock. But what we have is a metaphor here that God himself gives us in chapter 7 of Jesus the Lamb shepherding his suffering people to the very end. Now let me briefly explain, this is where, again, I'm going to tell you this because I think it significantly influences how I'm interpreting this passage and how I think you should interpret it. Let me tell you why I'm dividing the passage where I am, like why chapter 8, verse 5. And just turn there and look at that for a second and notice what that verse contains. You have there the angel taking this fire from the altar, and throwing it on the earth. And what happens on the earth when he does this? In chapter 8, verse 5, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
Now hold, just look at that for a second while I read. I think this will be the easiest way is for you to look at that passage and keep looking at verse 8, the last line of it. This is from chapter 4, verse 5. I didn't point this out last week because I knew I was going to this week. From chapter 4, verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. All right, now you're holding there on 8.5. Let me just tell you another one. This is the end of next week's passage. 11.19, keep looking at 8.5. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let me give you one more. Keep looking at 8.5. I'm not trying to be a jerk and tell you where to have your eyes, but if you don't mind... 16.18, Revelation 16.18, and there were, listen here, take a wild guess at what's going to be there. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. A couple of verses later, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So let me tell you what I think is happening here. I think John is doing what he does in 1 John and going in a big cycle over and over again where he's telling the same story from a different angle and each time did you notice that it was getting more intense. So it starts off with just the lightning, the rumblings, and the thunder. Then it added another layer each time he went around. I think he did that four times. So each one got a little bit bigger, progressively bigger, progressively worse, so much that at the end... You just think, this has got to be the end that we're talking about here. What I think is happening here is each one of these is talking about the end, talking about the last day, talking about the day of God's wrath on man, on the earth, on sin. So this is why we're dividing at chapter 8, verse 5, is that it's a part of the way John structured this book. And I'm not going to get into too many details, again, so so as to not present our sermon uh, in 30 minutes. But... This is part of the structure. Is John's giving you visions of the last day over and over again so that you will say, oh no, that last day is going to be really bad for all those who are outside of the protection that the Lamb provides. Which makes you want to do what? Be under the protection of the Lamb. Be sheltered from the wrath of God by your faith in Jesus. That's what this book is trying to do, is make you stay true to Jesus, even when it means that you're getting your fingernails pulled back by the enemy, so to speak, hopefully, because you love Jesus, and they hate Jesus, and you kind of expect people who hate Jesus to hate the people who love Jesus, if that makes sense. And so this book is trying to make you hold fast to Jesus because you want to avoid The judgment, the wrath, the earthquake, the hail, the thunder, the lightning, the rumblings. You don't want to be there on the last day. You want to be safe and secure under the Lamb who is your shepherd, who is keeping you safe from the wrath of God. So, how then does Jesus the Lamb shepherd His people? That's the question we're going to try and answer. I'm going to try and do it relatively quickly. But in chapter 6... The Lamb shepherds us, and in doing so, He rules over our persecution. The Lamb rules over our persecution. Perhaps when you listened to me read and hopefully followed along as I read chapter 6, and you heard about these horses, maybe 
one of the questions you asked was, who are these four horses, or what are these four horses? What are they doing? What do they represent? When do we see them? And we need to keep in mind that this book, I mean, basically this whole book, is highly symbolic. There's lots of symbols in it. So I don't think, personally speaking, these are actual horses. Just laying a few of my cards on the table for you. I think they are representative of something else, and I think that because the passage says it. For three of the four. So there's four horses. Three are easy to tell what they are because it says the fourth one. I read five books on this passage, and they all five said something different. So I'm going to tell you which one that is in a second. But just keep in mind that this book is highly symbolic, which makes it hard to understand. But remember that it's highly symbolic because it's dripping in Old Testament symbolism. It's like John, I'm just trying to think, of like a teabag that was sunk down into the Old Testament and pulled back up, and you expect it then to taste like the Old Testament. I think it's probably a reverse of what actually happens. You know what I'm talking about, so deal with that. What I'm saying is, John is giving us one Old Testament phrase after another. Even the four horses come from Zechariah 6. It's just one phrase after another. is from the Old Testament, and typically from Old Testament symbolism. So we have symbolism on top of symbolism. Even these seals are symbolic, remember? So just to back up, and I'm trying to give you like markers here. I know some of you are probably like, I'm out. <laughs> like it's Labor Day weekend, I'm just, I'm done. I'm just going to leave and go home. I'm going to try and give you some landmarks here. So last week, uh, Jesus, the Lamb, is handed a scroll from God himself sitting on the throne. That scroll, remember, represents human history, particularly God's plan to save his people and to judge sinners, those who have rebelled against him, which is all of us, but some of us have been saved by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. And so that scroll represents Jesus bringing God's plan of salvation and judgment into time. The way he does that is by taking those wax seals off the scroll to unfold what's actually inside, what's actually going to happen. And so what I'm arguing is that the scroll we read about last week in chapter 5 represents God's plan to save his people, to judge his enemies, in today's passage, Jesus is opening that scroll, is revealing God's saving and judging plan. So the scroll is symbolic, the seals are symbolic, and therefore the horses are symbolic. And the question then is, what do they symbolize? And whether that's something in the past or the present or the future, or some combination. And again, interpreters vary. I'm going to tell you in a second, all right? I just have so many things I want to tell you so that I can kind of more quickly go through this in a chunk-by-chunk chunk fashion without getting into every detail. And you're welcome to sabotage me at the door and ask me any question you want at that point. To which I will say, I will send you an article. <laughs> All right, so, uh, but what I was going to say is interpreters vary on this question of what these horses mean. And uh, there are people that I appreciate who are all over the map. So there are people on one side who I appreciate, there are people on another side who I appreciate, and in between as well, I appreciate them all. This is an example of what I referred to in my sermon last week of a third-level issue. So you have like the most important, the next most important, and the least important, but still important, because there are things that God tells us and encourages us to do and so forth. So a third-level issue means it's okay for you to disagree on these issues. It's okay for me and John to not see eye to eye, and for John and Joe to not see eye to eye, and for, we could go on and on, as far as connecting with who, 
it's okay. We can still be church members if we disagree on what some of these details mean. A second level issue would be like, I should probably go find another church. And that would be like if I said, we're going to baptize a baby. You know, let's just say Luke and Trisha's baby. We're going to baptize her, Hannah, as a way of showing that she's part of, our, of the covenant family. There are lots of people I really appreciate who would happily do that right now. That's fine. You should probably just go to a different church if you want to do that. Uh, and then you have people who would say, like, I don't think Jesus is actually coming back. I have no problem with you saying, as a Christian, that Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died and rose again and then went back to heaven. But that's the end of the story. And now human history is just going to play itself out however it pleases. We would say that's a first-level issue. We would say, then you can't be a Christian if Jesus isn't coming back. This is a big deal. This is a significant part of the Bible's teaching. And so you're, you're denying a major tenet of Christianity. So in today's passage, we're dealing with a lot of third-level. There's some first-level stuff in here, for sure. But we're dealing with a lot of third-level debatable matters. And so what I'm arguing is that the first five seals from the four horses and the, the prayers of the saints are in the present, happening right now. They've been happening since Jesus went back to heaven, and they're going to keep happening until basically the very end. And so the last, uh, until Christ's return, really. And so the last two seals then, seal six, which is the last half, the last section, the last chunk of chapter six, seal six and seal seven are basically saying the same thing as each other, and those would be describing God's terrifying judgment on the last day. Okay, that's how I understand the six and seven seals, is that's looking forward to the day when we, we just sang in It Is Well that the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. That sounds like kind of a bad day if you're on earth. How about, you know, stars falling from heaven the way that fig tree, figs fall off of a fig tree? Have you ever seen fruit falling off of a tree because it's weighed down? It's time for it to fall off. You know, apple trees just dumping their apples because the weather's gotten too cold or something like that. If stars are falling like that, that's a bad day to be on earth. And so I think what verses 12 through 17 are doing are referring to the the great day of God's wrath, the last day, what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. But that skips past these four horses. So let me give you an example of uh, just letting, uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, letting the passage itself tell you what it means. And then there's one that it doesn't do that, so that's where there's a lot of uh, confusion or or disagreement about. So the second horse, this is in verse 4, is bright red, and its its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. What's the opposite of a world marked by peace? It would be a world marked by war. We would say that this is happening right now and has been happening, and it sure seems like it's going to keep happening. So this red horse represents war. He's permitted to take peace. He's permitted to bring war. People slay one another. This happens with different kinds of weapons. Perhaps you're slaying each other with AK-47s, which I don't even know if that's a real gun, but there are more advanced ways of slaying people than there were, we could say, technologically in this passage, but this second horse represents war. The third horse, the black horse, represents famine. You have somebody holding scales saying, well, this is an appropriate amount to pay for this amount of food. So it goes through different kinds of food, wheat and barley and oil and wine. 
And this is an appropriate amount to pay for these. And what you see there is, uh, in verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. Well, that's hardly any food. So you're kind of starving. You have barely enough to survive from one day to the next, but there's no way to get ahead. You're just happy to get through the day and have a little bit to put on the table for your family. We can say there are times where this is, this is happening in our world today. I just got, we got a piece of mail in the, in the church mail last night about ending world hunger by Christmas. Well, that sounds fantastic. There's a lot of famine to make up for. It doesn't seem like it's a very sustainable way. I mean, it's hard to make wheat and barley and things like that grow on our own. So if it's not raining in places, this is talking about famine. Then the, the th- uh, fourth horse. So this is the pale one. Again, it tells us what it is. In verse 8, I looked to behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. The fourth horse represents Death, and Hades, the place of the dead, followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. It means people are dying, and there are people dying from the sword, the war talked about, and famine, and pestilence, and wild beasts, the things that the Old Testament talked about all the time of how people die. So that takes care of the second, third, and fourth. The first one is the mysterious one. There's lots of different interpretations of this one. It's a white horse. One of the reasons this is hard is Jesus rides on a white horse in chapter 19. So there's lots of people who think this is Jesus. There's also people who think this is Satan. (laughs) It can't be both. There's also people who think it represents peace. There's people who think it represents war. Like, we could go on. That's just four of them. Uh, But this, this white horse comes... Its uh, rider had a bow and a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. If I had to take a guess, I would lean on the side that this is not Jesus, that it actually represents evil because of the way that we understand the first four uh, seals here are similar to the first four trumpets, which are similar to the first four bulls, and all of those are bad in all those cases. So it would be weird to have one good in the case of Jesus and three bad in the case of the war and the famine and the death. So I'm going to say, personally speaking, on a very thin limb there, that <laughs> this represents bad, represents evil, represents you know, some kind of a satanic force. What I'm saying, all together though, because again, the, the point of chapter 6, I think, is to say that Jesus shepherds his people by ruling over their persecution. I think this is describing there's lots of bad in the earth for those who love Jesus. Now, naturally, it's really bad on the earth for those who don't love Jesus too. And what we see is God shepherding, ruling over all of it, but shepherding and protecting his own people doesn't necessarily mean, like in the case of Gail Williams, that you're going to survive living in Afghanistan. You might not. You know, our, our friends, uh, Travis and Jenny Wasserman, I asked them in Sunday school about a year ago before they moved in the Sunday school class on missions, doing a Q&A with them on their time in Afghanistan. They left Afghanistan for the sake of their physical lives. That's not a, you know, they weren't feckless. They weren't uh, foolish to leave. They weren't faithless to leave. They just realized, I think there's other ways we can serve the Lord if we are still physically alive. So all that to say, there, there is great difficulty serving the Lord, and sometimes we need wisdom of whether we should live in certain places or not. But verses uh, one, six, yeah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 seem to describe 
human history on a big scale, that there's really hard things in human history. There's war, and there's famine, and there's death, and there's disease, and you could go on and on. And it's really hard to be a Christian in this kind of world. It's really hard to be faithful to the Lord in this kind of world. Chapters nine, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, exposes the prayers of those who've died for their faith. And they say, Lord, sovereign Lord, when are you going to avenge our blood? We died for you. Again, people like John Chow and Gail Williams trying to love sinners, share the gospel, and they lose their life for it. You could go back to the first century and see lots of people eaten by lions, literally have their heads chopped off by lions in public view for the pleasure and entertainment of the watching Roman world. And they're crying out here saying, Lord, when are you going to get vengeance? When are you going to avenge our blood? We died for you. The answer to that question comes later in the passage. We'll get back to it in a few minutes. Verses 12 through 17 I mentioned refers to the great day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. It mentions the desire of unrepentant sinners in verse 16 for the Lord to bring crushing rocks on them because they don't want anything to do with God. They don't want to repent. They just want to be out of their misery. They want to be hidden from the face of God, the one who's seated on the throne. That's in verse 16. Where else in the Bible do we hear about people who, are, who want to be hidden from God? This goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve saying like, mm, yeah, we were hiding from you. We were scared of you because we were naked. He said, hold on. How did you know you were naked? And there's this conversation between God and Adam and Eve. But the point is Adam and Eve were hiding because they felt like God's wrath was too much to bear. And that's what this passage is describing. Again, we read and it is, uh, we're saying in it as well, the sky will be rolled back like a scroll. Mountains and islands are moved. This sounds like Psalm 46 that I preached back in June. The earth will be moved into the heart of the sea. What I'm saying is that persecution will take different forms at different times for different people. And so for maybe for us as Christians, staying true to the Word of God means simply being willing to hold convictions that the rest of the watching world thinks is utter foolishness and even hateful for you to hold those convictions. And we would say, Lord, we want to stand strong by your grace, and we need the Lamb to shepherd us, to reign over us in this time of persecution. But do you notice at the end of verse 6, as we move into chapter 7 here, at the end of verse 6 says, The great day of their wrath, that's the wrath of God and the the Lamb, has come and who can stand? The answer to that question is in verse 7. And so what we see is that in uh, in chapter 7, he brings us into the safety of his presence. This is how the Lamb shepherds us. He brings us safely into his presence. So what I'm arguing is that the Lamb, Jesus, shepherds his suffering people to the very end, to the last day. And he does this by bringing us into the safety of his presence. I'm going to fly here. And you can catch me at the door, like I said. I believe that these 144,000 people who have the mark of God's, the seal of God on their foreheads, is all faithful Christians. Throughout time, throughout human history. I'll explain that to you more when we get to chapter 14, which I know because of the way we're flying is only a few weeks away. So in chapter 14, I'll take just that chapter, I think, and I'll explain more about the 144,000 there. But I think it refers to all of God's people through all of uh, human history. 
and what you, one of the reasons I think that is because, as we move into the second half of chapter 7 here, do you notice in verse, chapter 7, verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed. All right? So it sounds like I hear something, but then when he looks in verse 9, I saw a great multitude. This innumerable multitude, which sounds like Genesis 12, like the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled, like God has saved many people, as many people as there are stars in the sky and there is sand on the shore. There's a great multitude there that no one could number. So it's even more than 144,000. It's countless. A great multitude from all over the world. And they're celebrating. They're, They're rejoicing in this shepherding lamb. The reason I point out that heard and see and, and looked thing is because we saw this last week. In chapter 4, or I believe at the beginning of chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5, John heard what? He said, turn around and look at, what was it? A lamb. Oh, no, no, a lion. I want you to hear, there's a lion over there. And he turns around and what does he see? He sees a lamb. So this heard and see combination happens throughout Revelation. That's one of the reasons I think that the people referred to, the 144,000, is the same as what he turns and sees, a great multitude that no one could number. Okay, so that's one brief argument for that. But what are they doing? They are worshiping. They are praising God with complete praise. That's what those seven terms, you know, the blessing and honor and wisdom and majesty and glory and so forth, there's seven terms there to say, give God complete praise. He deserves every bit of it. No one else does. And these white robes that these people are wearing in verse 14, which we'll sing about this in Jesus Paid It All in a few minutes, they've washed their garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. It's a way of representing the purity we receive not by living a perfect life, but by having the blood of Christ wash us clean. And the way that happens is by faith. And so believe, we urge you to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and the sin of the whole world. Believe in Jesus alone for salvation. And look at this shepherding ministry of Jesus and of God the Father as well. In verse 15, He who sits on the throne will shelter them. You're safe there. People there in God's presence will not hunger. This goes back to the passage Dan read this morning about God will give you an amazing feast of great meat, and so forth. You will not thirst or hunger anymore. The sun will not strike you. You will be safe in God's presence. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide you, Christian. He'll guide you away from the difficulty you're facing, from the suffering you're facing, from the embarrassment or the the cost of following Christ. And He will shepherd you on the last day to the very end and bring you to springs of living water, which is exactly what Jesus told the woman at the well you would find if you believe in him. If you believe in me, I will give you a well of water springing up unto eternal life, living water. And it's the same thing that God told Israel that they had neglected. He said, I am a fountain of living water in Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 17, and you have neglected me for empty cisterns, like an empty glass. There's nothing on the bottom holding the water. And that's what you want to drink out of? Why in the world would you do that? I'm giving you a fountain of living water. And here Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you to springs of living water and there will be no more tears because there is no more sin and there is no more suffering because you are in the midst of the Lamb. 
So the Lamb shepherds His people. Jesus the Lamb shepherds His suffering people to the very end. He does so by reigning over persecution, by bringing you safely into His presence. And then third, in chapter 8, verses 1-5, through the seventh seal, He answers our prayers. The seventh seal is representing uh, the conclusion of the last day, basically. You have here this thunder and the rumblings and so forth. But before that, you have these prayers of the saints. What are those prayers? They were mentioned in chapter 6. Lord, how long? Like, there's got to be an end to this. This can't go on forever, this suffering. And the Lord says, okay, now here's the answer. On the last day, your prayers will be answered. You will be vindicated for your faith in Jesus. This silence in verse 1 is actually terrifying. This isn't like a break in the action. Like, okay, everybody catch your breath for a second. 30 literal minutes. No, this is Habakkuk 2 levels of keep silent because God's judgment's about to be poured out. That's not a pleasant moment. The silence is not a gift. It is terrifying. It's saying, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That's in Habakkuk. That's in Zechariah. And we could go on. So God's judgment, in other words, is the answer to the prayers of the saints for vindication back in chapter 6. Lord, how long is this going to go on? Here's the end. Judgment for those who are outside of the Lamb. Jesus the Lamb shepherds His suffering people to the very end. So don't fall away because of cultural pressures. Don't fear what man can do to you. Fear God. God sovereignly rules over present and future suffering in the world in which He brings wrathful judgment on the wicked but gloriously saves His people. We read in the Heidelberg Catechism, and this one, this is, I'm wrapping up here, this one was published in 1866. So, it's going to sound a little different word-wise, but same concept. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God, and hath removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me, bring me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. That's what benefit there is to affirming the creed that says he's sitting at the right hand of God and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Christian, Jesus is coming back again. So find your hope in him. Endure the suffering by keeping your eyes on the Lamb who is shepherding you along, and He will bring you into the place where we will say, I will dwell in His house forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is your shepherd now, and He's your shepherd then. And just like we have lots of stories in our culture of suffering now and glory later, I mean, this is what you have in Harry Potter. This is what you have in the Chronicles of Narnia. This is what you have in the Lord of the Rings. This is what you have every time two teams play each other and fight each other to the death or whoever uh, stands at the end of the game. You have conflict and you have victory. And that's what the Bible is doing. You have conflict, but on the last day we have victory and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because we are shepherded by the Lamb who has washed us clean by His own blood So trust in him to the very last day. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we long for the day when peace will rule on the earth because...
Christ has made all things right. We don't live in that world right now, though. So give us grace to be faithful to the end. Give us grace to keep our eyes on the Lamb, to stay close to Him, to obey Him, to be fed by Him and by His Word. May we love one another well as we as pilgrims journey toward that last day and the place where you will shelter us and feed us and quench our thirst and wipe away our tears. Amen. Let's stand and sing